This is the Video Junkyard Podcast. A place that appeals to your deepest and darkest fantasies. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. From this nightmare world emerges a fearsome half-man, half-ape with the strength of 20 demons. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Video Junkyard. I'm your co-host, Joe Peterson. With me as always, Eric Branson. Eric, how's it going? Good. Hey, uh, welcome back to Video Junkyard. And we'll be doing some stuff in the junkyard today that you should probably never do in a junkyard. Lighting off fireworks, burning down small objects. Of course, this is our 4th of July celebration. Yes, happy birthday, America. And uh, to celebrate the birth of our country we will be of course watching some sleazy cinema yes definitely and of course this is also um our contest episode we have a contest to see who could correctly guess uh the titles that we'll be discussing today so we will get into those in just a moment and then you'll be able to check and see if you were the lucky winner yes congratulations uh, in advance to our lucky winner hopefully you were able to come up with both of the correct titles and win the mega prize pack from video junkyard so uh on the next episode we'll announce who that winner was and what lucky swag they uh had sent to their house probably against their will (laughs) yes there it's it's going to be an exciting exciting wonderful prize for sure certainly so eric um how's it been going it's actually been it's been about two weeks i think since we've yeah yeah my fault we were out of town again um my wife Corey's job um she's been working at a remote office out of town so we we've been back and forth between chicago and rockford illinois which isn't far but it still has to kind of uproot and transplant our our oh, lives yeah, away so recording remotely is possible but not preferable so we we did put this one off a little bit but so that's my bad but we're we're here <laughs> yes awesome and you know to anybody who's out there listening you know we don't actually record these when you're listening to them they're all pre-recorded hence the idea of a podcast but um anyway i did want to talk a little bit about uh a film i i talked about or i went and saw this past week or so um that I've been hearing some buzz about, and uh, it's it's something that probably is a film where if it came out years from now, uh, or, or years ago in the past, I should say, is something we probably would have covered on the junkyard, and that is the film Hereditary. Uh, did you have a chance to see that one? I didn't. I, I I really would like to. I read a lot of good things about it, so and uh, it let you yeah, talk and, a little bit about it, but yeah, I unfortunately have not yet. I intend to see it. It's uh, it's pretty messed up. I mean, it's I guess. It's not for everybody. I'll say that, and I'm not going to give any spoilers about it. Uh, but it's you know it's 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 in the it's a genre picture, so it's definitely in the horror genre, uh, horror thriller. It's uh, it's definitely not for everybody. Uh, without giving away anything about it, if you were disturbed, offended, sickened, and nauseated by the film Mother that came out uh, last year in 2017, you might want to stay clear of this one. It is nothing like it at all, but it has the same kind of extreme 
very in-your-face, uh, impending dread. It's a bit of a slow burn, much like Mother was, but with some some very key sequences that are really quite disturbing, I think, for most audiences. So if, if you're a fan of the genre and you really are kind of open to these kinds of things, uh, like movies that really challenge you as an audience member to, to your constitution and see what you can actually sit through, I highly recommend it. If you're a bit squeamish, you might want to... Um, I want to check out Incredibles 2. I heard that's very, very good. <laughs> I'm sure they're both good in their own way. Yeah. Oh, sure. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. actually, I do want to see Incredibles 2. <laughs> I'm not yeah, mocking I, it at all. I'm just saying that's the, the polar opposite of Hereditary. <laughs> yeah, I've always had a soft spot for um, you know good family films as well. So as, as you'll probably see in upcoming shows, I think we're going to cover some, some of that territory as well. But... Um, yeah, which actually I um, I did have a chance to review some. Oh, my my daughter was sick, unfortunately, the other day, so I was home with her, and you know we we're kind of a hang around and watch movies on Amazon Prime or Netflix or HBO Go or something, and we ended up watching the original Karate Kid, oh, which yeah. she'd never seen. So I got to I got to uh, introduce the original 1980s Karate Kid to an eight year old in 2018, and uh, she really liked it, which I was happy about because I've tried cool. showing her other films from my childhood that she just didn't give a shit about but this one i mean i've i caught her today doing the wax on wax off and that was really really quite fun to see yeah that'd be a fun one i look forward to and my kids are, are much younger but i look forward to having experiences like that and, and hopefully at least a couple of my favorites growing up they will relate to in some way so um karate kid is one that i don't remember very well and i i, I remember loving it but i probably haven't seen it since i was you know 10 years old or under at this point and i probably should check it out again i kind of always expected it wouldn't be that good but if it's worth another chance i should definitely watch it i think i actually enjoyed it more now than than i think i ever have before and it certainly could have been the audience that i was viewing it with you know sure. you're kind of seeing it from their perspective in a way mm-hmm. um i'm sure that played some kind of a role but it's it's um it's really grown as a classic it's still a very sweet movie um and speaking of other movies that you just there's certain times in your life you watch them and they just like hit you in a way that you haven't noticed before yesterday which was father's day um one of the things i i did with with the kids was we we sat around we moved a a small tv outside with a small dvd player and we sat outside in the sun and watched movies and one of the things we watched was the original superman the movie uh uh, richard donner film (laughs) which yeah and still the ending of it you know when he drops off lex Luthor at the prison and he says don't worry warden we're on the same team and he flies away it's just like (laughs) and it's christopher reeves it's just you know the whole package um you know, and I know we, we, we refer back to like superhero movies quite a lot on this show already, uh, and I don't want to necessarily get into all of that, but, but it's just there's something about seeing a character captured so well from page to screen that, you know, 30, 40 years later, you can go back and watch it, and it still has the same impact. Yeah. And it still works. It's still the best portrayal, I think, of Superman I've seen um, from page to screen. It's, it's still the best. Nothing against Henry Cavill, nothing against... Well, I guess a little bit against Dean Cain, but you know, um, <laughs> overall, it's, uh, it's just still the best in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a classic in every every way. Uh, it's it's funny, it's lighthearted, but it's it still holds the weight of the character and gets the character correct. I think it is the mm-hmm. kind of alienness of him. It does it, it doesn't play it. I mean, Zack Snyder's movie plays it to where. He's so isolated from the world that it's, it goes to a very dark place. But I, I still think the Christopher Reeve character, the Christopher Reeve portrayal, um, does have some um, 
some alienness to him, but he's he's. I don't know. It just kind of hits all the right notes. I don't want to get too deep into analyzing that film because I would love to yeah. do that actually. <laughs> for, for yeah, real, I think that would be a, a that whole the Richard Donner series, so to speak. I think would be worth doing uh, in an upcoming episode, maybe. Um, you know, a I'll, not so forgotten maybe, franchise, <laughs> right? A not so forgotten. I guess a, a one that is longed for. Um, yes, but I guess you know, I, I I did read in the news recently that Henry Cavill is is kind of teasing audiences that he might be starring as Superman again, like in a Man of Steel two, which I know uh, even people that are critical of the DCEU are really hoping happens because they got a glimpse of how he could be as a really good Superman in Justice League very briefly. And they well, they want to see more of that, so maybe we can we we can uh, tentatively promise if that is a thing uh, <laughs> that yes. if maybe Man of Steel two gets greenlit, we'll do that. We'll review Superman films, which I think would be a lot of fun to do. Yeah, I look forward to it. So that sounds like you had a really awesome Father's Day. Uh, movies outdoors and grilling sounds. Yeah, sounds yeah, fun. we did some grilling and and uh, the kids splashed around in like you know one of those little kiddie pools we set up. Um, but and yeah, it was just, it was a lot of fun. Drank some, some really good beer and ate some good food and watched good movies with good people. It was a lot of fun. What did you do? Not a lot. <laughs> well, actually that I did do nice a lot. I, 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 we drove back from Rockford that day. So we, you know, packed up the car. Well, the good thing is I, I got, I, we did do breakfast with my father and when we were in Rockford oh, cool. and then, uh, drove back to Chicago and just kind of had a day around the house. I guess I did go out and get some groceries at one point, but um not a huge amount of celebrating but yeah it was it was fun yeah i think that's going to one of the things that's fun about days like that where it's it's not about like you know it's a birthday so you better do something big you know nobody yeah. expects you to on your birthday you're always expected to do something like did you go somewhere did you go to a concert did you go to a movie did you go out to dinner when it's father's day it's like did you sit on your ass you should have sat on your ass yeah, because that's well, what that's, it's all about. That's what I did yeah. wrong this year, I think, is I was doing too much. But that's okay. I, I think. Yeah, I, but but I think that's part of being a being a good dad. I think you yeah. know, is that you're up doing stuff. So nice. so yeah, I think I think it, it, it's all fair game. I just always thought it was kind of amusing that birthdays. It's like if you're like, no, I kind of just hung around and didn't do anything for my birthday. People treat it like it was a waste. But if it's Father's Day or even Mother's Day, you know, it's like I got to do nothing. That's like ideal. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, the whole point. <laughs> that is the whole point. We need more days that celebrate sitting around doing nothing. So speaking of holidays, good segue. Um, oh, wow. This is our 4th of July special today. So happy birthday to America. Um, we will celebrate it by talking about films that somehow incorporate the 4th of <laughs> July into it. So why don't I let you kind of... Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, so, by the way, when we were picking movies uh, for our 4th of July episode here, uh, we, we made a, a point, like, obviously, let's avoid the obvious ones. You know, we're like not Independence Day. doing Jaws. We're so not doing Jaws. Jaws. Unfortunately, I love Jaws, but unfortunately, we are not going to talk about it today. That was the only time we're going to mention Jaws today. <laughs> yeah, it's it's too easy. Well, I don't know. It might get brought up again. Just oh yeah, I and but, I, I could um, see us doing a franchise show on that. That could be fun because Jaws has a oh, lot yeah. of really questionable sequels that could yeah, bear really some conversation. Does. But well, and there's a new yeah. one coming out. Well, not a Jaws, but a new giant shark movie. But yeah, so Fourth of July ones. Yeah, you know, Jaws is kind of an obvious guess, right? Because it's the whole idea about not clothing the beach on Fourth of July weekend, and of course Independence Day yes. or Independence Day resurgence. 
quickly scratched off the list. <laughs> not doing those. I wouldn't do those anyway. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Honestly, I, yeah, I, that's not one that I think aged well. Like, I, I liked it a lot when it came out. But I liked it a lot yeah. when it came out, and I think within a year, I was starting to, like, I, I had a Phantom Menace moment with that. Yeah. Where it was like I walked out of the theater going, oh, my God, that was incredible. And then you, you let it kind of ferment a bit, and you go back and you watch it again, and you're like, no, that's, that's, that's kind of shit. That's kind of shit. And uh, yeah, the sequel I, I did watch, and I really wish I didn't. Um, <laughs> yeah. There were parts of that that blended in with Chud too. Actually, it was that bad. No. Oh my gosh! <laughs> no, it wasn't. Well, anyway, it was. It was pretty bad. So, um, so yeah, so we tried Independence to avoid Independence Day either. As wonderful and... as Randy Quaid is in the film, just kidding. Um, but well, not really. But <laughs> um, so those movies, nope, not those either. So if you guess Jaws and Independence Day. Unfortunately, this year, you are not a winner. Right. And I think those were kind of the more obvious 4th of July guesses that we're not doing. So if those were yeah. any of them so on your list. We also tend apologies. to do, you know, we, we always talk about the bargain bin or the B-movies or the um, kind of schlock films. So I think a lot of people are going to guess there's a very famous bad movie called Uncle Sam came out oh, yeah. in, uh, I, I think, in the late 90s. I didn't even look up the... the I, I'm vaguely aware of it, and I've seen some scenes from it. It's actually pretty hilarious, and I'd, again, something I would love to talk about. Didn't pick it for this show, though, so if you guessed that Uncle Sam... That was one Sam, that came out... Which is, I think that was one that came out where there was like a, a rash, and, and I do mean a rash, of... Holiday-themed, uh, straight-to-video yeah, horror films. There like, was like a, a couple of evil Santa movies, and I don't mean the Silent Night, Deadly Night films, but... You know, uh, yeah. there there were some evil Santa Claus. There was oh, Gary Jack- Busey as a gingerbread man. There was the, oh, the Jack yes, Frost killer man. movie. Yeah, so it, yeah, none of those. I'm sure there's an Easter Bunny one. Of course, Leprechaun, whole other yeah. franchise, which we'll yeah. we'll talk about. Well, th- thanks, Killing Jack Frost. You know, you're talking holiday themed horror. I mean, we're we're we got years of material for holiday shows, my friends. So if you didn't get them this year. This are definitely some movies that may come up in years to come. So if you're you're one of those that just wants to double down on your your jaws and you're born on the Fourth of July, maybe keep trying. You're gonna probably get it right one of these years. So. Yeah, it's that answer's in the box somewhere. You just have to keep drawing. So uh, the two films that we did watch, though, uh, we what we try to do on the show here is we kind of each recommend a film and then we each take so, you know we both watch it again. Yeah, and, let me ask uh, you before we the big reveal. How did you go about picking your Fourth of July film? Um, I was just kind of thinking of you know, this is again kind of in in the the vein of one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast is look at films that were popular at one point. So either we we, we kind of tend to look at films that were either completely independent and and virtually you know unknown. Uh, like a very small, independent, privately made film, or something that was a, a flash in the pan. Like, this was a film that was very popular for a week. A lot of people were talking about it, but it has since gone the wayside. Uh, and, and those actually latter ones are ones that I've really been kind of revisiting lately. So when we talked about doing a 4th of July show, this was kind of the first thing that popped in my head. It's like, well, what movie have I seen, maybe it hasn't been for a long time, that I remember the 4th of July playing a role in, at some in some form but it was a popular film when it first came out 
uh, and then it's something that you know now it's been you know 20 30 years later uh, we don't really remember it that well anymore because it's it's just been kind of buried but it's still a really good film so that's where uh, the the inspiration for this one came from what about yours mine was pretty random I was having trouble coming up with a fourth of July themed film that wasn't one of the three we just mentioned um, mm-hmm. so I was just kind of searching around and googling you know fourth of July movies came across a user's um, IMDb 4th of 4th of July horror movie list or something along those lines must watch 4th of July horror films and just kind of peruse that list until I found something that kind of piqued my interest something I'd never seen before so it wasn't something coming from memory um, mm-hmm. just uh, a film that looked interesting and it looked like the 4th of July I played a a role in the setting at least and um I thought it would be a nice fit for the show. Um, it's yeah. So so I sounds like you put a lot more thought into it than I did. I literally just kind of rolled the dice on somebody's list and, and uh, <laughs> pick, picked out a movie <laughs> that. Uh, well, well, interest, it works because so. it's it's definitely going to give us something to talk about. Why don't we start with that one though? Why don't you uh, introduce us to that film a bit? Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Hey, just a reminder, all the reviews we do here on the Video Junkyard podcast are full of spoilers. Now, most of the movies that we are reviewing are older than I am, so if you haven't seen them yet, get out there and watch them. But just as a warning, there are spoilers in these reviews. Spoiler alert. Okay, so the movie that I watched, or we watched for the 4th of July that was my pick, um, is You Are Not Alone, 2014 film. Um, written and directed by Derek Mungor. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, I always, always uh, give the um, disclaimer about names and pronunciations because uh, I, 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 having you know the last name that I have, I'm used to having my name butchered. So I apologize if I ever do that to anybody. I understand what it's like. Um, <laughs> so it's uh, "You Are Not Alone" 2014. Six people have been murdered in little more the than murder. a week in this actually it was made in 2014 right was it when was it was it released in 2014 i thought this was something off of a like a, a campaign wasn't it the how it was made it, wasn't it like a, it a Kickstarter? was the, the the yeah and the full length feature film was released on the 22nd of june 2014 so there was a short film produced that was released sometime earlier i don't have the date right in front of me but the short film was used to uh, launch a kickstarter campaign that then raised the money to make a feature film and i guess right away what i should say is actually let me introduce the film it's you are not alone 2014 i know that's the third time i've said that um 
From IMDb, the synopsis is, Natalie is a college graduate visiting her hometown over the 4th of July. The night she arrives, she is stalked by a sociopathic killer. That's all we get. So, um, it's an interesting film, and the reason it piqued my interest, I'll tell you, is because it is somewhat of a... And I don't like to use the term experimental film because that means something genre-wise that I don't necessarily mean, but it, it certainly is a film that has uh, a gimmick to it. And that is that the entire film is shot from the lead character's point of view. So it's a POV film. And this is different mm-hmm. from right. what we would normally find, like call a found footage film, where in found footage films, they're usually using the camera as a character, so there has to be some excuse made for why the camera's always rolling, yada yada. That's kind of some people's complaint about the found footage format. Yeah, it produces a a gimmick that never really makes a lot of sense. You have to really suspend a lot of disbelief, I find, in POV films because of the found footage aspect. Like, really? This guy's still rolling or this girl's still recording all of this? It it requires, in my opinion, uh, quite a lot of extra suspension of disbelief. Right. Human behavior. So some famous examples of found footage films obviously are The Blair Witch Project is probably the most famous example, um, but also um, Cloverfield, which is a yep. you know kaiju ta- <laughs> monster movie bit that is shot in uh, found footage format. Which, and... which I actually kind of liked. I really did like Cloverfield, especially the way that they explained the found footage. Yeah. Why is he still recording? It's like, well, this is obviously a big thing. People are going to want to see this. Right. So that one kind of made sense, but not for an hour and a half (laughs) exactly yeah it always seems like towards the end as things get really dire like why is a camera still rolling um george romero did a film called diary of the dead that was a found Mm -hmm. footage movie and i think even that one even the master himself suffered from the same kind of found footage fatigue towards the latter the latter half of the film trying to find excuses for why a camera is still rolling and you know why why are characters (laughs) so dependent upon the camera still rolling Et cetera, well, et no, it, so it, there was also a film that came out around the time that Blair Witch did, which was 1999, and uh, it was called. Uh, it was a movie about the Jersey Devil. Ah, the last, last broadcast. broadcast. Yeah, and yep. that one wasn't as much a found footage as it was a documentary. I think it was, yeah, it was see, like found one, footage aspects. That one took the kind of, and I don't want to call it a mockumentary because that's more. That usually implies comedy a little bit, like Spinal Tap esque mm-hmm. right. um, comedy, but. It, it took on the documentary form more than like the Blair Witch, because like, like, the Blair Witch Project, the, the whole kind of framing mechanism of the film is that the kids, or the te- the college students, were shooting a documentary on the Blair Witch, mm-hmm. and um, but the the footage itself, I mean, they never came back, so the footage itself is literally found, and that's where they're getting all this stuff. The last broadcast um, framing mechanism was a little more that the film had actually, the documentary film had actually been finished, but you see um, that the the filmmaker himself is not, and that, I mean, obviously that's an old film, so I guess we don't have to really worry about spoiling, but as, as it yeah. goes on, you see that he's not really a reliable narrator, and that something's weird with the, you know, the film itself, or the filmmaking itself, so it's, it was, that right. was a very clever approach, and that's been used a few times too, and I actually think that's a little more convincing than most found footage films are. I agree, especially because, like you said, it, it doesn't just rely on the found footage it actually does this kind of pseudo documentary aspect to it so it makes sense why things are being recorded and Blair Witch you know did did too but as effective as Blair Witch was that I should also mention that last broadcast was not a very popular film meaning it didn't reach a huge audience compared to Blair Witch which got a theatrical run around the country 
I don't think last broadcast was a, a nationwide release. I think it was mostly direct to video. Yeah, um, I think so. And it was like an indie, or very release. limited sure release. Played, you know, small art house and and festivals and such. Festival but, circuits, sure. Yeah, Blair Witch. It, you know that that was Blair Witch. Uh, part of the brilliance of that one, actually, not to completely get off topic of the film we are discussing. <laughs> But uh, was the marketing campaign for Blair Witch, where they actually had a sci-fi channel documentary about this legend to help kind of reinforce the idea that this totally fictional legend that was made up for the film, you know, it, it added a little bit more of a dimension to it. It yeah. was a little bit nice, you know, some, some good table dressing for it. Uh, because I remember going to see the film in theaters and thinking, okay, is this fake or not? Because that was the thing <laughs> on sci-fi. They did a really good which, job, and I don't think you could do it anymore but yeah i mean they they've just really they invented a whole kind of subgenre um and maybe yeah, not invented because it had been toyed with before but like the, the effectiveness that they had people going to this film thinking that this was really found footage like this was an actual event and the only place you could ever really find out when when they were rolling this out that it, that it wasn't true is uh like a, there was a disclaimer page on their website but you had to click through yeah. like three things that say saying like they would warn you like okay you can read the disclaimer, but it might affect your enjoyment of the film and yada yada. And then you'd click again and they'd say, really, seriously, this could spoil the viewing of the Blair Witch Project for you if you read this. And yeah, and, and then eventually when you got through those like three pages of security or whatever you want to call it, they would they told you, you know, this is not an actual movie these are actors and yeah, right and then after the film came out you know the, the the three stars of the film appeared at like some mtv movie award thing and i was like okay well clearly they're alive um yeah. <laughs> but but yeah and i think you brought up a good point though is that it's something that really of course the, the found footage genre you know was started with that and it had been toyed with before but the way they did it with marketing um can only be done once right yeah, I or mean, maybe they, twice, but but not very often. I they think reinvented the wheel, but they broke it at the same time. Like it's, yeah, uh, and I think it's kind of like people like you know Sasha Baron Cohen, who when he was doing the Borat and all of the and, and the the different character films that he was doing. Uh, you know, he can't really do that anymore because everybody knows it's him. Nobody can be nobody's fooled by it anymore. So th there's a special place I think in in entertainment for these kind of, of moments where you have a film or a character or an actor or something that like you just said, they, they, they reinvent the wheel and break it at the same time. Yeah. Uh, it's well, it's a very, very unique thing. Uh, and I, I'd say for you are not alone. Um, I think it, it, it was a refreshing spin on a very, very tired subgenre, which is the whole found footage thing. And I, I did appreciate that they, didn't bother with trying to do an explanation for found footage it was just the person's perspective yeah and i think that's what makes this not a found footage film this is what makes this unique and, and different and i'm not saying it's never been done I, i've never seen a movie that stuck to it as well as this but the entire film is from the perspective of the lead character which is a late teens girl uh college grad named natalie i don't remember her last name i don't think you ever get last name um, who's coming back home after graduating from college to the small town that she grew up in. And it it really seriously never breaks being POV. It is, you see from behind her eyes the entire time. You never actually see what Natalie looks like. You see her hands and legs in, in portions of the film. Um, I think you might once see a photograph, <laughs> it, you know, vaguely, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so you do. It, 
it is 100% as you are looking, experiencing the film through the eyes of the lead character or the main character. And the film itself, story-wise or concept-wise, definitely fits into the stalker slasher genre. Um, something that would have come straight out of the, you know, 80s. Um, mm-hmm. without, without, you know, some of the 80s cheese that some of the slasher movies had, but um, definitely a... A slasher film. It's it's partying teens stalked by madman. Pretty run of the mill when it comes to the actual plot of the film, and I I don't mean that as an insult, but I, I do think that if they were if they would have spent a little bit more time, if their concept or their actual script for the film would have been as high concept as as, as I'm not yeah. articulating this well, but as high concept as like the the film itself or the mechanism that they used that perhaps they would have made a little bit stronger or more memorable of a film. But the the thing that was interesting about you are not alone is the POV thing. And I think they're generally pretty successful about it. Whether that's a successful way to tell a story, I think is what we can discuss here (laughs) because I think um, there are times when it actually hurts the film quite a bit, but uh, yeah, I, I think I have to be honest. This wasn't a film that I loved. Um, it was one that it, it, I will say it wasn't a chore to get through, but it just kind of was a little underwhelming because it this thing they were really trying to sell, which is oh here's a, a slasher film essentially from a POV perspective, but we're not using like a found footage gimmick. Um, it was something I noticed and then promptly forgot that this was a a POV. A true yep. POV, not a camera, but like, here, yeah, we, we, we obviously distract a GoPro onto the actress, but this is our gimmick. I guess it was almost so simple. And and they're right, it hasn't been done before, but I don't think, have we had a slasher film from a POV? Maybe like one of the numerous Halloween sequels or something did a POV, didn't one of them do a POV perspective one? One of the Halloween hey. films. I mean, not not entirely. No, I mean the the original Halloween film had a, a, a used utilized POV quite effectively in multiple places. Well, yeah, uh, no, most I thought notice, that was one of the most notably like the intro scene when um, young Michael yeah. Myers is is stalking his sister Judith through the house and around the house. That's done entirely from POV to kind of keep the the, the startling realization that it was a six year old child that just stabbed his sister right. to death. But um, didn't they? Which that's probably one of the most brilliant uses of POV in that I can recall I agree. in cinema history. I agree. But, but, and I think that's where those... they've gotten their inspiration, surely. But but one of the later sequels of Friday... Of, of Nightmare... I'm sorry, of Halloween. Jesus. Um, one of the later sequels of Halloween, wasn't it taking place on, like, a a reality TV show? I thought that was one of the, yeah, the sequels that I came think out. Halloween... Is it Resurrection? Is that the one with Busta Rhymes? <laughs> Yeah, I think that was the one. Yeah, I actually just got the the Halloween box set recently. I haven't watched any of them since I've repurchased them, and many of them I've only saw once, especially the later ones, because I wasn't a huge fan of some of them. But, yeah, I mean, that that one, I believe that might have been the the framing mechanism to get... I don't know, that was really a poor sequel, so... (laughs) Well, most of them are, but... but... Yeah, but I th- I think that's the kind of the weird thing is they were like, here's it's a way you've never seen a slasher film, and it's like, yeah, true, but it doesn't really change much. Um, I mean, because I guess I noticed the character doing 
even more of the things that slasher films, which you know, and anybody who, who knows me knows, I, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for slasher films. But, uh, of course, some of the criticisms of slasher films are true, like which they bring up, of course, in, in Wes Craven's film Scream. You know, like, why is somebody always running upstairs and stuff like that? This film does some things where this main character, Natalie, does some things where that just don't make any sense so much where I think because you're in that POV, of course, the idea of a POV is to, like, make you feel like you're in it to some degree. Right. You know, it's like she's running around, this guy's trying to kill her, and she's never yelling for help until, like, the end. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that was something that always well, weirded me out. It's and I like, feel like maybe the POV is at fault for some of the... Um, for it not making sense at times. There there were times, like, especially when the towards the end of the film when things got intense and she was running and then you know the guy's running after her and it's kind of bouncing around and and there were moments when it was kind of difficult to figure out what exactly was going on and especially difficult to figure out her intentions which unfortunately is crucial to it being a pov film you have to kind of be in the girl's head with her that is so important and i think that's where this fails like camera wise and tech wise and the way they shot the film and the way they framed the scenes everything worked pretty well um they were pretty successful at at making it seem pov like you're um i mean besides the fact that they had to put edits in but i forgive them for that because otherwise what do you i mean what are you going to do you're going to have it all take place in three hours which they could have done um but i I forgive them for the fact that there's edits so what um yeah yeah that's a little bit of suspension of disbelief. I can allow them on that one. So, but I also think that the the fact that it was a POV film did something kind of interesting to the movie that I didn't expect, and that is the fact that I didn't really relate to or understand who this character was at all, and it was because I couldn't see her. Human beings, yeah. like, communicate so much with body language and facial, um, just just the way that. And especially something as strong as fear, like in these in a, in a horror film, um, fear and intentions and kind of what she was all about. And especially when things got intense, like that's why you couldn't understand what she was thinking or what she was doing is because you couldn't see her. You couldn't see her body language. Yeah. You couldn't see her face. You couldn't see her eyes. Um, I think the, all of that yeah. stuff really hurt this movie. I mean, even in the what? parts of the movie that are more dramatic, like early on, um, which yeah. were the, actually my favorite parts of the movie. Once it turned into a slasher film, I, I stopped caring for it almost immediately. Um, yeah, it worked. A, I mean, I thought that the intro, the establishing introduction where it's, you know, so this girl, she returns home. She just graduated college. She's living in, was it in Minneapolis? Yes. And she moves she returns back to for the fourth of july weekend um to her hometown which is a very small town in illinois and which by is by the way Eric, it yeah i was just gonna say did joe it. and i both grew up in a town Great extremely job. similar to this it was almost creepy they, similar like that was to me the most effective part of it and that was incredibly personal of course is that yeah it they captured these guys are clearly from a small town in illinois and they yes. pretty much filmed it there. This would be like if we filmed a movie in Pecatonica, Illinois. They yeah, captured it was, small it was so And I'm not like, criticizing that, by the way. It's just they captured it really, really well. Yes. It was so accurate that I almost felt like it was taking place in the town I grew up in. Like, it was so... It, it just felt like that, you know, there I was, small small Midwestern town. And, and yeah, it was Illinois, actually, in the movie as well. So, um, Though what did get me is I, I realized while I was kind of having that realization, wow, this is really wow, they really captured a small town. 
uh, in Illinois, I also realized, you know, anybody who's not from a small town, like if you're from Chicago, if you grew up in Chicago and you're watching this movie, it probably makes the budget look even worse because (laughs) it looks kind of like thrown together. I'm like, well, because it's, it's capturing actually like a real place, you know, like here's like the biggest thing I, the biggest thing I really liked about the film and and as we go, I'm going to pretty much change my mind about it. But as it was developing, I really liked the depiction of the town, the people of the town, and the relationship between the girl who has left the town, gone off to college, yeah. um, and come back, and then her relationship to the people that have not left the town. Um, this is something that I think it, that I've experienced a bit of in my life. I'm, I've, yeah, yeah. Our stories are similar in that regard. We went to the same college, actually. Grew up in the same town, yeah. went to the same college. So right. um, so obviously we have those. I'm sure your experiences are, are uh-huh. similar to mine. But Oh, very much I so. I think it captured yeah. something that was is very, which is why I'm sure the filmmaker himself, uh, the writers are from a small town and most likely in Illinois because they got it so right on the head. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I think like that's there, there just, was just for it was a uh, neat example of like okay, so this girl comes back after she graduated college, but now she's living with a guy and they break up. All this is said just through some kind of basic exposition, some well done exposition, very well done actually. Um, and and she's kind of just going home for the weekend for the Fourth of July weekend to her her hometown. She's kind of at that point after college where she's not really sure what she wants to do now, and. You can tell this couple that she's friends with, you get the idea they were like high school sweethearts or something, and now they're married, that she's picking up where she left off with them. Like, they're close enough friends where they're picking up where they left off. It's been quite a while. Yet, there's still... You're seeing the rift there, which was so much more interesting than the slasher, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. I was going to say, the character development, and this, this, this film gave us some really solid interesting characters and not the pov character i don't think she was ever i mean you got her you got her story as a framing like okay here's who she is but since you're looking through her eyes like you never really can like i said i I think the main thing is you just can't make a movie this way because the characters you're not going to understand this character because you can't see her you you don't relate to her the way you do other human beings and um, yeah I mean, there so, were some lines that were thrown in that kind of explained some of the odd behavior. Like, she does call 911 right away, mm-hmm. and they never show up. But early on in the movie, you know, her friend that she's hanging out with, his, her dad is the local sheriff or chief of police, probably chief of police. And, and he even says that he's so swamped. He's, you know, five calls behind on something. Um, so it explains why the cops aren't there immediately, but... I didn't buy as long as it took. Like, you know, yeah. there, there's news stories going on in the background about a killer in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And the police I, actually, have... Actually, all of, all of that stuff was set up quite nicely. It just... It really was. The payoff and, never... It just... Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah, it was it was a great setup. Maybe the, the hometown stuff was a little too much for what it ended up being. It ended up being a slasher. Yeah, because film, so they, they never go back to it. Like, the characters no. leave. Or they're, I think the last time we see them, they're, like, making out at a party. And yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, so it kind of goes nowhere. It, it sets up something, but like you said, because you're never seeing Natalie, 
You don't see facial expressions. All you see is her hand reaching for an object, and you go, yeah, I would yeah. do that. I mean, but I can't. I couldn't it. tell you right now, like, if I liked her character or didn't like her character or whatever, because I, I don't know. So I thought that was super interesting that that, you know, it actually turned up, ter- the, the POV thing actually turned out to hurt her character rather than help you get inside of her head. I think it actually made it harder which, to relate to her which ultimately hurt the film i mean all i think when and I, maybe this explains why to be honest when the film was over i kind of went huh well i didn't really care for that yeah. and i think it's because you know i stuck with it the whole time but when you don't have character development when you don't even see a, an arc for a character we saw a nice up ramp but we never saw a full arc for any of the characters in this film Her actions then, when it switches over to being a slasher film, um, it's easy to be very, very critical of her actions because you have nothing else to go off of to balance that. Yeah. You can't say, oh, but she's got a heart of gold, or oh, she's... I mean, what do we get from her? She's going through some, you know, like, I have no idea what's going on with my life moments. Mm -hmm. She screws with a guy's phone. Yeah. And kind of just like, I mean, yeah, he kind of seems like the hometown, probably from the kind of characters that her and her group of friends are and the kind of character that this guy throwing the party is, she's probably just, you know, fucking with him because she didn't like him in high school or something, which actually seems like a super petty thing for a character to do. And they're all kind of like laughing about it. But even the two people she's with are laughing about it very uncomfortably, like, you know, whoa, Natalie, that was kind of. Wow, you really shitty thing to do, you know? Yeah, you really started some shit, and now you're just kind of sitting back. So it's like, what was that? What was? I'm not sure. That's the thing is, I'm not sure from a writing standpoint, um, what Derek Mungo or Chris O'Brien, who wrote the film, yeah, what are what were they trying to say? You know, how are they trying to character? I'm sure they know. I mean, it just I I just don't think it came through. And I think, honestly, if we could see Natalie, we would have understood. Now, unfortunately, if we could see Natalie in this film, this would have just become a super run-of-the-mill slasher movie. Um, right. Probably would... Losing its gimmick would actually have made it less interesting. And just because it falls apart... Again, I'm going to I'm gonna put it on the fact that it never comes back to the good things it developed in the beginning. It just becomes yeah. a slasher film, and that's it. Um, yeah, I, I, got, I got a feeling that, like... And one thing you know we were just kind of talking about a little bit before uh, recording is she she goes through the entire movie and she's well once it once the the, the killer shows up and is is chasing her around and, and terrorizing her she's running down the street she's going from house to house she's going through this neighborhood through this small town and it, she's not saying anything like people in this town know there's a curfew. They know why. There was only one scene earlier on that made me kind of... Or two scenes, I should say. I'm sorry. That made me kind of get the idea that people in this town were not taking the mandatory curfew of 11 p.m. seriously. And that's one when they go to a fireworks show earlier in the movie. And at the end of the show, over the loudspeaker, they talk about how there are two children missing. Mm -hmm. And everybody just kind of keeps walking. Yeah. Like... The, the husband of the friend makes a kind of gag about it and they tell him that was inappropriate and then they get in the back of a pickup truck and they go to a party. Yep. And then you go, you're at the party and you hear a whole bunch of police cars going by, whizzing by real fast, and somebody makes the gag, ah, the neighbor kid must have blown his hand up with an M80 or something. 
and they just these people ignore it now you and i grew up in small towns um to be to be in illinois to be honest if you were at a house party and a whole bunch of police cars went by everybody would come out of the house and go chase that car to see what the hell was going on yeah you'd have a crowd around wherever they you were would have a crowd. and honestly if it was a small town and over the loudspeaker at a, at a big town event that there were kids missing people would stop i mean yeah it's a small town thing it's a midwestern i'm not saying it wouldn't happen in a big city but in a small town everybody kind of knows each other right so right. um i i get this impression that there was something kind of weird that nobody really gave a shit right um but i don't know i think the, the storytelling just wasn't very tight on this because i wonder if as she's running down the street not yelling for help is that somehow related to nobody caring before i just i didn't get it the, the most basic thing you know when we all criticize slasher films like why is she running there and grabbing this and not calling 911 and getting a knife you know um we we criticize these but this was like the most primitive basic thing this was like the 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 girl natalie here wasn't even a good scream queen because she didn't scream and i know that sounds really, <laughs> really creepy but she <laughs> she didn't even yell for help as she's running from the killer everybody is paranoid about to some degree she doesn't even yell help there's a guy trying to kill me. It's the guy you've read about in the papers and saw on the news. He's right here. Doesn't say anything. Yeah. She's just like whispering down the street. It made no it sense to me. Tried to do like that whole Halloween, like um, you know, knocking at the doors and people. The, the scene where Jamie Lee Curtis's character is Laurie Strode's knocking on all the doors and all the lights are going off because you know people would assume, oh, it's Halloween, it's just a bunch of punk kids kind of thing. And I think that totally right. works in that movie. Yes, this movie yes. sets up this whole thing about there being a killer on the loose and a curfew, and um, you know, and the police are you know out looking for this this guy or whatever's going on in the town. Um, and yeah, and then still like people aren't responding to her knocking at doors, and people aren't. She's not yelling for help, which doesn't make sense at all. Like, I mean, right? I think I, mean, she, she I actually goes think it's simpler door. than that. I think that in the that we're we're led to believe that she's not yelling because she doesn't want the stalker, the slasher, to hear her, because he's never too far behind at any point. There's one point where he is and. She does go into a house. Somebody does answer the door, and um, but I think after that, he, she's hiding. She's you know, he's he's close behind her. I, I, that was kind of how I, how I read it. I'm not saying it was it was masterfully done necessarily, but I think that's why she's not yelling for help. Is she's trying to hide, she's trying to stay away, hoping he's you know gonna you know go find yeah, somebody else just, to um, I just talk. But it was it was really strange i mean yeah. I, I if that's what they were going for that is something that maybe could have been better executed like you said by not doing this pov gimmick yeah and see this is a good example of something that probably i didn't i didn't see the short film because i watched this on amazon prime so i wasn't i, I didn't mm -hmm. have the dvd I, I believe it is included if you do purchase or um rent this film on dvd um i haven't seen the short film i'm sure i could look it up uh, this is a good example of something that probably worked well in a short. Like, I bet the short mm -hmm. is actually much more uh, convincing and possibly more um, terrifying than than this feature film version of it is. Yeah, it's uh, like Lights I, Out. Just yeah. like Lights Out. 
Right, right. And I can't I can't say that for sure because I haven't seen it, but it feels like something that a gimmick like this is usually something that works better in the short form. When you try to expand it, it's probably a challenge that the filmmakers had. Um, I don't I don't want to go you know on my high horse and say too much bad about the filmmakers because they did do a lot of things well here. It just um, at the end of the day, it doesn't really work for me. Uh, I think most likely it's it's a better idea for a short film than it is for a feature film and most of its problems come from trying to flush it out and i do before we get done talking about you are not alone i did want to get your opinion on what the, the one thing which funny with a slasher film we haven't talked about we haven't even mentioned the slasher the um <laughs> <laughs> uh so what did you think of the the murderer the the psychopath the slasher character in this movie well you know i think they were going for realism which is obvious with the pov that's one of the gimmicks about pov is that it makes you feel like you're there as i've mentioned but and i think they were trying to do that with the killer here too because he's just this kind of like nerdy looking guy who's just weird and creepy and maybe there are people out there like that maybe that's believable um you know it's just maybe you know no why would he have to wear a hockey mask or something you know so i get it they were trying to just create a creepy killer but I think one of the things that gives a slasher film um, legs is that the, the killers are really, to be honest, they're the characters you're rooting for, whether you like it or not. Because without them, you have no film. Without them, you don't have a story. You can't have a slasher film without the slasher. So we kind of love these characters in a very weird way. Jason, and it's, there's a mythos. Even in single films, there's a mythos. Uh, mm-hmm. Before they make sequels, before they made a sequel of Nightmare on Elm Street, the reason they made sequels to Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and Halloween is in the first films, you had a mythos that was complex enough and interesting enough to later be expanded. This, once again, with the POV, you have no explanation of who this guy is, of yeah. what his motivation is. And I know in real life, if you were actually, God forbid, being stalked and murdered by somebody, you wouldn't know always what... They, they wouldn't stop and do the supervillain thing. Like, ah, but you're wondering why have you tied up? You know, they're <laughs> not going to do that. But, well, maybe they do, and that's creepy. But, it, do you know what I mean? Like, this, yeah, it was exactly. hard for me to really get excited, scared, or otherwise about this, this villain. Because like everybody else in the film okay I, I can at least see what his face looks like but there's yep. no story there you and are not if... privy to any of the like you said mythos like all of the great slashers your michael myers your jason Voorhees, your um freddy krueger all have a backstory and a backstory which the characters are aware of at some point in the film in elm street it's later after after they start you know the teens start dying off that they find out who Freddy Krueger was, what happened to him, and oh my god, he's coming back in our dreams. Same thing with Michael Myers. He's a child murderer. His his presence kind of hangs over this small town. Jason Voorhees was, uh, you know, a, a child, and the legend is he was going to come back on Friday the 13th right. and, and take his revenge. And so there was a legend behind all this stuff, and because Nat, this is something they could have done. Natalie and her friends could have been aware of something. They could have put some story behind this guy, and they didn't. And I think that's because they, like you said, they were going for that stark, realistic take on things. Right. So, so yeah, Which... you you are a person 
living through this situation. You have no idea what's coming at you. It's just coming at you. And sure, they, they right. kind of did that effectively, but it doesn't make it a good story necessarily. It just... It, it also... I just didn't care for their characterization of the slasher character. Not necessarily that the actor was bad or um, anything. He just wasn't imposing whatsoever. Like Unbelievably I, imposing when he was. It was like this... How is yeah, this guy... He was just kind of a, like wormy little guy and they i think they tried to make him creepy by i mean let's be honest his entire shtick was a bad joker impression um yeah pretty much pretty much um yeah i mean he does these really kind of creepy things with one of his victims not to bring it back to comic books again but (laughs) but no essentially it was it was like okay you know pretend you're you're heath ledger's version of the joker but even more crazy just act it's like they told the guy just act crazy and he went okay i'll just do this yeah and, and I'll admit there are moments when it's kind of creepy, but there's also moments where it's not believable. So it's, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm being a little I, harsh on it because I know it, 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 like I said, like you said, they were definitely going for that like realistic thing, but they sure could have made him a lot creepier if they put a little more character into him as well. It, it made it a him versus her, which, which usually, you know, which is very much what slasher films are, at least the, the first entries into those. But you have to know who the him is, and you have to know who the her is. Yeah, so this is like a slasher movie where the the characters that you understand or know the least about in this entire movie are the two that you should know the most about. And it's... Yep, so that's why I think generally this one was a failure for me. Yeah, it it was kind of I don't feel like I wasted my time because just the experiment of it was enough for me uh, to, to say, okay, well, that was interesting. Here's what I learned from watching this film. But right. the film itself is just not. No, it it wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to anyone unless they just want to see how they, you know, how the filmmakers accomplished doing a feature length film in POV. Uh, but otherwise, I'm I'm not super excited <laughs> about it. The film is a cautionary tale of why you should never make a film like this. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's when and it's when, and like I said, you... I'm not. I it's it's something that probably was always going to be what it is and that's because they they were had a successful short they kickstarted to make a feature they probably had a lot of really great ideas but i'm sure once they got to the point of you know it bloating or it, it expanding into a feature it just doesn't the yeah. concept doesn't hang for 90 minutes it's just not good enough and, and actually it, it the concept falls apart the worst when it becomes a slasher film so yeah exactly when when you have a slasher film where you not only care if the main character dies or not you don't really care if the killer's around or not yeah well you know nothing about the character why or about the killer why are we why are we scared of him like why is i don't know i mean yeah he's crazy he's spooky he's got a knife um that that stuff is all very scary i will admit if i was you know living through this situation but but he does stupid shit i feel like it needs a little more than that yeah he does stupid shit (laughs) <laughs> too like both of them do and you know so like we she when he's got her tied up not even tied up he's just got her laying on the ground in the house mm-hmm. and he puts the knife on her leg and then turns his back to her like yeah well that like, was i well, think that was supposed to be ooh, look how crazy i'm gonna give you the knife will you use it i don't know but yeah I don't know. but anyway. it's like well yeah because it, it was just kind of like it, it yeah. the that kind of explanation and that kind of exposition I mean, was just completely 
completely absent. Natalie seemed so, like a tough enough girl throughout that whole movie. She totally should have been able to take this guy at any point. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It, he just, he didn't seem, when he didn't have the element of surprise on his side, I don't, I, he didn't seem imposing to me. So anyway, I, yeah, I'm, what would you say letter grade on you are not alone? I, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a D to be honest, I'm going to give it a D to a close to a D minus. I mean, the, the only thing okay. that saying it was, you know, from saying it was completely worthless is like you said, it's, it's worth existing to show, okay, so this has been done and probably shouldn't be done again. We probably yeah. shouldn't have a, a POV slasher film because it really uh, takes away from character development, which I guess it, the one thing it really did is it made me realize how, like well, like not just with any story, character development's important. Yeah, no shit in every story, but particularly <laughs> in this one um, or in this subgenre, you need to know about the villain and you need to know the strengths of your your lead, your your you know uh, your protagonist and your antagonist. You have to know who both of them are. And in this case, we got a better idea about who her friends are than herself exactly and and then they were gone halfway through the film and that's ultimately when the interesting part of the film ended i hate to say yep i agree um although i'm going to be a little more generous i'd give it a c minus because i think con conceptually there are pieces of it that are interesting and pieces of it that work for me i, I actually think they did a good job um characterizing it characterizing characters yeah but anyway um of the characterization in it is is very successful and i'm gonna you know also just the town itself as a character and just uh it felt very set in reality it falls apart when it turns into a slasher movie for me it could have stayed yeah. a drama and been more interesting to me um it just yeah i don't know um doesn't work as a whole it's a nice experiment but yeah yeah I, i'd go with a c minus I think that's a good point is like the, the town is the most interesting character in it and they're only in it for half of it. Yeah. You know, plus another thing too, is the way the film was marketed, uh, not only with the short, but with the Kickstarter campaign and even the cover art for the DVD is the killer wearing this kind of creepy clown like mask, which he never wears in the entire film. Right. You see There's a like person a... in this mask at the party and it's never right. actually, said that it's him i it, i'm implied because of the cover art that it must be him hanging out at the party you know but you never really know because you never see him in the mask again and the mask is never referenced again so i mean i guess i could it, go back and watch it again did i miss convention that they i think marketing wise they threw a mask on him it yeah, probably I mean, it, wasn't <laughs> and maybe i should watch it again to see like is this guy in because the whole party scene they seem to linger on the party scene for quite a while. Mm. And you see this guy in a clown mask show up in the beginning and he yells something silly and runs past. Um, I, I kind of want to go back and just watch that scene again just to give this film another shot. Like, okay, did you do something clever and I just missed it? Uh, is he in the background of every scene yeah. at the party? And I just missed it, or is it really just nope? Some random dude makes no sense. I don't know. Maybe I'll have to do that. Maybe I will. I I will give that to the filmmakers because they they tried something different, which we now know is ill advised. 
Yeah, I'll I'll watch that scene again. If not, they missed a great opportunity. By the way, I also loved the character of the captain, which was a pot dealer <laughs> that lived in his mother's basement. Um, you, if if you're gonna watch, you are not alone. You'll get a kick out of him. He's one of the one of the perks of the film. <laughs> and and if you're if you've ever uh, grown up in a small town or ever hung out in a small town, you knew a captain. Oh yeah. A couple of them, probably. A couple of them, yeah. You may have been a captain at you one point. You may still know a few of them. <laughs> yeah, you may, you may be, you may know them quite well, actually. You may be um, listening right now, eh, Captain? Exactly. Aye, aye. You know, I think that that was a, a good character. It was, you know, this, this, yeah, like a pot, a weird pot dealer with a conspiracy theorist pot dealer with delusions <laughs> of grandeur that lives in his mom's basement yeah. and gives himself stupid nicknames. Yeah, yeah. See, all, that's... all of that stuff was good. That's why I, I, I'm going a little higher than you on 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 the grade. But yeah. yeah, I agree with you for the most part. Like this, the whole kind of purpose of this film existing didn't didn't work out for me. So, uh, I'll anyway. even say this: I'll go back. I'm going to rewatch that scene because as we're talking about it, I'm thinking about it again. I'll go back and watch the party scene again if I can spot the killer hanging out, lingering in the background, and and I just didn't notice it the first time. I will raise my review to a C plus or a B minus, because hmm. that, if that's the case, that's clever, and I missed it. Yeah, I, and but I watched I don't this know, one pretty closely. This wasn't one of those like doing housework around. The, I was I was pretty, um, which which movies we review on the podcast. I, I I try to sit down and you know not have distractions when I when I watch them, and. Um, I'm pretty certain that's not what they were going for, and if it is, I was watching pretty closely, and so it's really hard to catch. Like, yeah. um, not that I, not that I'm perfect, and not that I, it's it's not possible, or not that it's not possible, I didn't catch it, but I still I'll give it a shot. I wouldn't, I'll, wouldn't I'll watch it my again. Grade one bit, even if it's there. So <laughs> I'll sleep better at night. I'll yeah. sleep better at night <laughs> knowing I watched that scene again to make sure this is I, this is me trying to be like really giving yeah. like come on i wanted to like you <laughs> these these are i and just to give them credit i think these are talented filmmakers that just that it just didn't work work out this yeah. time so yeah. i wouldn't i wouldn't run away from another movie by the same filmmaker um i have no issue like it just it just doesn't work for me it, you're not going to win everyone right <laughs> so that's right that's right video podcast so our second film, did that one win you over? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, this was um, your pick, so I'll let you let you introduce it. The movie that we're talking about here is the 1991 Martin Scorsese remake of Cape Fear, starring um, uh, Robert De Niro, Nick Nolte, Jessica Lange, and Juliette Lewis, and actually has some wonderful cameos from uh, Gregory Peck, Robert Mitchum, and Martin Balsam from the original yes. Cape Fear from 1962. Uh, this was a movie, I remember it coming out, it came out again in 1991, so I was pretty young. I was about 10 years old when this came out. Uh, obviously I didn't see it in theaters or anything like that, um, but I, I did see it shortly after it came out because i remember there being quite a lot of buzz for a short period of time because cape fear was a pretty popular film in 62 it had again gregory peck robert mitchum these are some very very big names of the early 1960s in film 
Um, and I, I think it's also quite kind of uh, just touching that this remake of Cape Fear, the Gregory Peck cameo, this was his final film, his yep. final role that he ever did. Uh, so this one did take a few extra liberties. Uh, it, it obviously is the same general story of the 1962 film, both Before of which too far are... and let me do um cape fear 1991 from imdb imdb sure. a convicted rapist released from prison after serving a 14-year sentence stalks the family of the lawyer who originally defended him i have to get a different place to get synopsis from these are all pretty watered down and short but anyway that's yeah, but it. that's kind of the basic <laughs> idea and, and they're based on um uh, the uh a, a a, a book, a novel by uh, John D. MacDonald called The Executioners, mm-hmm. um, which is not nearly as brutal as either films. The first film in, in, uh, with Robert Mitchum in 62 was rather brutal for its time. 1991's, the one that we're going to be talking more about here, the Martin Scorsese one, definitely it's Scorsese. This is right after he did Goodfellas, so he ramps it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's the same general story, whether you're talking about The Executioners or either version of Cape Fear. Uh, yeah, you've got this this villain Max Cady, uh, who is is just wonderfully played by by Robert De Niro. Um, <laughs> yes, and and in the original version played by Robert Mitchum. Uh, but yeah, De Niro really brings a, an early late eighties early nineties viciousness to this character. Friend, because I like to plan my comings and goings with friends. But if you're not my friend, you're planning my comings and goings, I'd call that presumptuous. In fact, I'd call it downright rude. Because I ain't your porch, baby, buddy. Well, gee, golly gosh. I sure am sorry I offended you, you white trash piece of shit. Ooh, ooh. I got the all over fidges on that one. You really shaking me up. I'm shivering all over. Ooh. It's not necessary to lay a foul tongue on me, my friend. I could get upset. Things could get out of hand. Um, and Juliette Lewis also plays, you know, the, the teenage daughter in this, and and she's well, probably what like 15, 16 I think she's supposed to be in this. Um, fifteen, I think they. Uh, was that, yeah. About fifteen, yeah. So yeah, she's this. It, it's you know the, it, this fifteen-year-old girl, and and one of the things that the character of Max Cady or De Niro's character does is kind of get a little close to her there's a there's a great scene in this um in the the school auditorium where there's you know where he he pretends to be the drama instructor for a while and so there's this set on the stage in the school auditorium of like a house and she's in it and he's sitting there and it's such a little red riding hood thing you're not the um drama teacher are you Maybe I'm the big bad wolf. Yep. It's really, really, really it, creepy and really yeah, I was going to say, it's probably the creepiest scene in that movie, and it, it's just a dialogue scene between the two characters. I, mean, I guess it, it does yeah. escalate at the end towards a physical encounter between the two of them. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's totally a Little Red Riding Hood, and, man, is that an uncomfortable yeah. few minutes. It's a longer scene. It's maybe five, six minutes in length, which is long for a scene in a movie if... If you ever stop yeah. and like time out, like really how think long about you've it, ever yeah. seen is in a movie, but uh, it Scorsese's a master of stuff like this, and I think that's where uh, filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino um, owe him a, a debt of gratitude. Is like 
building suspense in a scene, which Quentin Tarantino is obviously a master at as well, Mm -hmm. but using kind of a long scene and just kind of gradually ticking up that suspense to the point where when the scene actually like climaxes or comes to an end, you're like literally at the edge of your seat and you're just pushing your eyes against the screen, you know, like waiting for, you know, what is going to happen here. And this is just an incredible scene. Even if you just pull this scene out of this movie, given just yeah. a little bit of context that you just gave um it's yeah it, it's up there with um best examples ever of how to build suspense i think in two characters so. well and i think and the fourth of july plays a role here where it's you know this this kind of you know the there's a, a town parade on the fourth of july so this is all kind of happening around the week surrounding fourth of july yeah there's a great um, sequence, I think, the first time that they, um, Jessica Lang, who plays uh, Nick Nolte's wife mm-hmm. in the film, um, she is, he's Sam Sam Bowden, so she's Lee Bowden, I think, in this movie. Yeah. Um, the names in the original are a little different. Um, but when she first sees Robert De Niro's Max Cady kind of peeping into their house, um, there's a great scene of him kind of sitting on a retaining or a division. I don't know if it's a fence or a wall between mm-hmm. a property wall, but, um, and in the background, there's just fireworks going off and, um, yeah, just, just a great kind of stunning. This movie's got like multiple, um, moments that were very visually stunning as well. It's, it's kind of the polar opposite of the 1962 film, which is very bland straightforward mm-hmm. filmmaking which is common of that era late 50s early 60s and this is very stylistic i mean even for scorsese stylistic like everything's got a watery blue to it everything's got the waves creeping and even the way they light the movie and um everything's leading up to the water at the end and it, it's very artistic in, in, in scorsese's always very stylish and artistic but he really pushes it here um well the, also the way the film is bookended mm-hmm. um with with this monologue from Juliette Lewis, it's something that you haven't seen since the 1960s. You know, where you've got one of the characters kind of doing this introduction, looking at the camera, doing this introduction, like telling a story. You mm-hmm. don't see that very often anymore, and you certainly didn't see it in the early 90s anymore in films either. It was something that really was going on 30 years earlier. Yeah. Um, so it, it, even the style that he's... This is definitely an homage to the original film, Um there, there are a couple of differences. You mentioned some of the character name differences. Max Cady uh, and Sam Bowden, of course, are still, I, I think, yep, those maintained. Those two are the same, yep. But, um, and I think even uh, the other character, too, of Kursek, the private investigator. I think he's, I think that's a character from the original one, too. Yeah, in the original film, it was like a Sergeant Kursek who was a, uh, their security assigned by the police that went with them out on the houseboat. Right, um, but the other difference is in this version... Nick Nolte's character was the defense attorney yes. for Max Cady for the for the the for Robert De Niro's character. In the sixty two version, he was an attorney that witnessed Max Cady committing a crime and testified against him. Just coincidentally, he was an attorney. It really had nothing to do with Max Cady's defense or prosecution or anything along the lines. He he testified against him in court. But even though you, so you have one one version of a, a guy testifying against him, and the other version you have it where it was he was supposed to be his defense attorney, but he knew that his client was guilty, so he was actually kind of a shitty attorney if you think about it, because he covered up evidence. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, that would have and been... And I think that's what separates this movie. This is a very 90s movie. And not just because yeah. it's a Martin Scorsese movie, but it's very... Um, very of its era same as the 1962 movie was very of its era and that is that this this version of cape fear there is a sense of moral ambiguity throughout all of its characters um yep. Yep. in the original 62 version it's all very cut and dried there's the good guy there's the bad guy um you know gregory peck is you know this upstanding attorney and and citizen and he did the right thing and now he's being you know stalked and punished because the law is you know failing him um Mm -hmm. in martin scorsese's cape fear you have a sense of moral ambiguity pretty much over everybody and that is that nick nolte's character is not necessarily a good guy he did do some really shitty things to max katie um yeah he's got this kind of supposed to be defend his defense attorney and he buried evidence uh to make sure that katie did time which is right right he had evidence violation of everything you're supposed to be doing as a state state's attorney or as a state's defense attorney so well and and he had evidence that essentially would have i don't think it would have exonerated katie but it would have reduced his sentence well i think the evidence that they they made it it it? was um it was that it would maybe it wouldn't have exonerated you never know it what it would have done is made his witness um less credible so basically it was going to put his accuser on trial which is which is another thing that i wrote down which was very moving or about this movie and not necessarily so much about the first one although it's there in the original i was surprised about how much of the sexual undertones were in Mm -hmm. the original 1962 and i expected it to be a little less obvious but it's not it's very much there and um but anyway in the in the 91 scorsese movie the one we're talking about um it is very much about in cases of you know, abuse and rape and um, how it's really not about putting the defendant on trial. Oftentimes it's more about putting the victim on trial yeah. and that, you know, you, somebody can walk just because you expose that, you know, the victim is, you know, a promiscuous woman or whatever. And that's mm-hmm. uh, right. That was generally the, the tone of, um, and that was very strong in the 62 one as well that, um, the 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 character um in the 91 scorsese film nick nolte's character is having a if not physical love affair but um it's kind of ambiguous as to whether they're actually sleeping together or not but certainly an affair of sorts with a co-worker um right and katie gets to her first before he comes after his daughter and um rapes her beats her up mm-hmm. and um, very brutally and of course being a martin scorsese picture it's it's depicted very brutally um but yeah. there's a similar character there's an equivalent character in the 62 film and and i mean sans the the graphic um violence it's it's all very much there in the original film too and it's the same thing as like she's not you know she's not going to testify against this guy because it's not going to be him on trial it's going to be her they're going to drag her through the mud they're going to nitpick every little thing she's ever done and this is a comment very much on the way that um victims of these kind of crimes are treated i think by well absolutely and i think the i just want to touch back on the moral ambiguity um or 
maybe it's not even moral ambiguity. I, I, obviously, I'm not talking about rape. Um, but just how everyone... Shouldn't be any the, ambiguity there. <laughs> no, there's really not. Uh, but how every one of these characters, there is no innocent character here. There's no character who is completely clean. And I think that was why they added the emotional potentially emotional affair there's some flirtation maybe beyond flirtation it's hard to tell what's going on with mcnulty's character and and his friend yeah um, i think that's intentionally left yeah the air, uh, uh, so. there's, there's she claims that she never slept with him in they have the conversation that she has with kate max katie in a bar but right you never hear him um yeah well he denies it vehemently as well well, so they have fine, a conversation maybe. early on where it's kind of like you get the impression that if he wanted to, she'd be down, but it doesn't yeah. happen. I mean, yeah. they, but but I was gonna say even Jessica Lang's character is a bit. I don't know if she's innocent or she's really done anything wrong, but you know, you can tell there's something going on with her marriage. And yeah. Juliet well, Lewis's she's character a bit, is, she's a bit high strung. It is. She is certainly the most, uh, the the least. I'm gonna constantly coming back to this morally ambiguous but she's probably the least morally ambiguous but she's still not innocent i mean the way she the way she reacts um to the situation when she finds out about this other woman Mm -hmm. and then nick nolte's character sam sam says to her kind of recounts this whole thing obviously he's had an affair in the past um and they talk about well what happened last time and how how she reacted so it it does sound like she's got her own set of baggage as well that she's carrying. Right. I wanted to know what you looked like. I've been waiting to see your face, but you know, now that I see you, you are just repulsive. I understand. Yeah. I'm not your type. No. All that prison time made me coerce. Right, and and Juliet Lewis being a teenage girl, I mean, she's probably the most the most innocent of this, but still has kind of flirted back with max well, katie and, she's and surely she... naive but i think she's got her own set her own set of you know beliefs and an agenda as well like she right she she's feels... a teenager yeah you know she she does stuff that kind of is really stupid you know when yeah. it comes and to there's a very strong to... and it's it's uncomfortable but there's a very strong sense of developing um sexuality in her character and that's oh, exploited yeah. heavily obviously by max katie and it's it's obvious that she's a little into the danger. She right. knows this guy's dangerous. Like once she figures out who this guy is, and she's very she's very like when she walked into there, I was like, oh, she can't possibly be this stupid. I even wrote down like, is she possibly you know, is she really this naive? That, but then like two three minutes into the scene, like I can tell she she doesn't think this is normal. She knows that something's going on, but she kind of likes that this guy's flirting with her, right? So mm-hmm. then she and she knows puts, it piss off her parents, right? Well, and then she she does she eventually puts two and two together of who this guy is. I mean, I think she likes that this older guy's flirting with her anyway, and and, and um, yeah, yeah and, and so as the that scene builds, um, she she figures it out, and I I think she's very uncomfortable, but at the same time, there's something that's still, um. I don't know. It's such a creepy scene. Like I can't imagine there's anything alluring about it. But yeah, there's. She definitely has a motive for acting the way she does, mm-hmm. and I think some of it is it's rebellious. Some of it is that she's trapped in a situation. I mean, she couldn't turn around and run at that point. He obviously could catch up with her and whatever. Um, then I think well, there I is think... a little bit of the fact that um, yeah, 
you know this 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 guy you know treating her like an adult like a peer is is mm-hmm. desirable to her well and i think what and and i want to be very delicate and very careful in how i word this because the character mm-hmm. of max katie is not sympathetic at all um <laughs> no. it, it, clearly but you have a character here who every every one of these characters has done bad things but they've also been wronged and mm-hmm. Max Cady, I mean, look, if Max Cady were real and, you know, the 91 version of Max Cady were real and did these crimes and his defense attorney sabotaged his own case where his client would go to prison for 14 years, I'd buy the guy a couple of rounds and be like, good on you for putting that scumbag away. Um, right. But but that's not the way the law works. I but mean, that's like, not the yeah. way the law works. So you so when, when Cady's like, I have a grievance, you're like, yeah, I bet he does. So it's not that you sympathize with him, because that would be reprehensible to do in the begin with. But the yeah. fact that he has a motivation that you can at least hear and say, yeah, I bet he is pissed. I mean, I don't care, but I bet he's pissed. Yeah. It's not um, that you sympathize with Max Cady. Max Cady no. is obviously, you know, violent, deranged, um, dangerous. He's all he's the exact kind of person that belongs in prison for 14 years, right? And, or longer. Or, yeah. or longer, yeah. Especially because he comes out with this vengeance pact, and then um, yeah, but he, what it does remind you is that Nick Nolte's character is not innocent either. Sam Bowden did this, you know, did this thing, and whether or not it accomplished something quote unquote good in the end, it's still a mark on his character that a defense attorney would would act that way. Um, yeah, and I'm really going to hand it to Scorsese on this one, and and you know the. The, the person who wrote the screenplay, which was uh, Wesley Strick, um, mm-hmm. yeah. that that this film took uh, Cape Fear, the original 1962 Cape Fear, which was, was very popular, um, and it made it more complex and ultimately more interesting by adding these flaws to the, the supposed heroes. I mean, it's Gregory Peck's Gregory Peck. Peck. I mean, the the guy was awesome in everything. I mean, he's he's forever Atticus Finch, Atticus right? Finch, yeah, no yeah. Kidding. Um, you know, he's one of the greatest literary. He's he, he played and brought to life one of the the most honorable literary characters in in history. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of funny too that in the cameo that he has in this version, Gregory Peck's character is a defense attorney for Max Cady. So it was like, finally, Gregory Peck can be a jerk in a movie, <laughs> you know, and it happens to be his last film, uh, and it's a remake of one of his earlier films. But I think it's it's really interesting how they took the original version. Gregory Peck was was a guy who was doing the right thing, yeah, and, and doing it within the the grounds of the law. With Nick Nolte's character, it's like he's doing the right thing but not in the system in which he is sworn to operate. Which gives him a flaw. A flaw we would all agree with, and we would all probably share, but a flaw nonetheless. And then other flaws that show that he's not such a great, nice guy. So I kind of wonder why that was necessary to show the kind of uh, potential marital infidelity. I was curious why that was necessary to put in there, because... Um, which isn't really a criticism of the film, but it was just like a discussion point. Did it really contribute to the film? You already know that he's willing to bury evidence if he knows one of his clients is guilty. 
and well, deserves to go to prison. Leads, uh, to, it's more about your experience as a viewer and your questioning your morality and yourself. And I think smart films do this kind of thing, and that is that you're expecting a lot of people, and especially in American cinema, classic American cinema, you you get a Cape Fear 1962, you get those clear cut good guy bad guy kind of relationships, but this the film brat generation, the film school generation, your um, Coppola, Scorsese, um, Spielberg, Spielberg to a lesser extent, but certainly has made films that are complex like this, have complex characters. Noir um, and so they on, present yeah. us with a a world that is not so cut and dried. And that is, you know, so your, your characters have multiple layers is is sam bowden as played by nick nolte in scorsese's film is he a good person i mean maybe maybe he is maybe he isn't maybe he's a good person that's just done some bad things and Mm -hmm. uh but i think that that is for your experience as a viewer you need to be sure that he's not gregory peck I think that's important for this version of the film. It definitely um, made it more interesting. It, it made you more interested to the characters. And maybe this is just a late 80s, early 90s thing. Maybe it's more of a sign of when the film was made, is that we wanted characters that were a little more complicated. It, it is. I think it's very, very much of that era. And I think you see a little less of it now, but I, that there really aren't there aren't good guys in this movie. There is certainly a bad guy in this movie. There's certainly the one that's worse than everybody else. But um, I also think the curious thing about this is, is, is in Robert Mitchum's portrayal of Max Cady, the character of Max Cady in the original film, obviously is out to destroy this attorney, Gregory Peck's attorney, um, Gregory Peck's Sam Bowden. And we'll, we'll stop at nothing to, you know, kind of, harass him and tease him and it eventually escalates and it escalates as Gregory Peck reacts to his um, or Sam Bowden reacts to his harassment and, um, but it's doesn't seem it seems like it escalates as or his plans change as things escalate and not mm-hmm. making again not articulating this incredibly well but um, in Scorsese's Cape Fear I believe when I get to the end of that film and I watch Max Cady sink under the water. Like, I believe, and let me see if you came to the same conclusion, that Max Cady, as played by De Niro, has planned pretty much every moment of this all the way to this end. Um, And maybe not quite like this, but he was more than willing to go down with this boat as long as he got to see Sam Bowden become the monster that he was creating. Like, this whole thing seems calculated. Um... He, yeah, he is he the entire revenge plot that De Niro's Katie has is to break Sam Bowden to show him he is not any different than him to yeah. make him want to murder to make him want to kill him um, to make him violent to make right. him break his family up to um, so, essentially so- he, he wins in the moment when uh, he finds out that his daughter was intimate with Katie and just becomes mm-hmm. violent with her i mean right right and you feel so bad for the character of danielle in that in that moment because she's being terrorized and and by this this madman on one hand and then she has 
you know, this father that's being abusive with her or, or physical with her. Um, yeah, her and hand. I think I think also yeah. when when you get to the point at the river where Nolte picks up the huge rock and he's willing to smash his head in. Yeah, I mean, so at that's that point you're like looking at self defense. Intentional contrast with the 1962 film where he lets Katie live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and so in this case, the the brutality is more. And this was a, definitely a theme in, in 80s, especially with a lot of Wes Craven films, is that in order to combat viciousness, you have to become vicious. Um, you know, he Wes Craven explored this with Last House on the Left and Hills Have Eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I feel like the Scorsese version of Cape Fear does something very similar. It, it that the, the motivation, like you said, of Max Cady is not just to destroy Bowden's credibility, and and scare him and intimidate him but to actually transform him and here's and, the major major difference if you had to pick out like one yeah. major difference between 62 91 cape fear is i think max katie wins this one he's I, I definitely so. the loser in the first one but i think he's done exactly what he set out to do and i don't think he ever would have i don't think he well, ever like considered uh Sorry, let me rephrase. I don't think he minded giving up his life for this goal. I think that was always something he had on the line. Like he was willing to go that far. Well, I think one he of the things that had makes, to see, yeah, yeah. I think one of the things Sam that makes Bowden this, fall that far. One like, of the things that makes this version of Max Cady so terrifying is his intelligence. Mm-hmm. Now they they say he goes into prison illiterate, and yep. while he is in prison, he teaches himself to read. And he studies the law. And, I mean, this is a guy who is so hell-bent on vengeance. And as he's dedicated his life to vengeance, which also means he's dedicated his death to vengeance. Um, he's willing... Uh, to, you know, he's, he's willing to die for it, but also he has multiple working scenarios going on. Because he seems to, to, to quickly account for change where it's very it's it, this is the definition of calculated mm-hmm. you know this is a level of calculated we don't you don't see in villains very often a villain has a plan um and and i'm intentionally doing this he's more <laughs> like the joker um <laughs> yeah where where he's he's got a plan but he's willing to get there by numerous different avenues and his his yeah. goal here is to 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 transform Sam Bowden into something brutal. Yeah, and he and does. By the, by the end of this film, Sam Bowden is um, lost his family. Essentially, there's a rift at least between them. Um, he has uh, lost his credibility because mm-hmm. he's going to be disbarred for this um, burying this evidence in the Katie case. He's on the run with suspicion of murder because of dead bodies found in his house. Um, what's going to happen when Katie's disappears? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's destroyed this man. I think he. I mean, uh, if you, you know, put his arm up in the ring because he's he's definitely the winner in this situation, and it, it, it's the polar opposite ending that the '62 film has. Absolutely, the '62 film has. You know, obviously Gregory Peck lets Max Katie live and sends him back to prison, which is the one thing you could do to Max Katie to, to really destroy him. I think mm-hmm. uh, is send him back because that's the thing that's kind of fueled him is this this rage about being 
in his opinion, wrongly incarcerated. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's it's um, it was I think it's a necessary change to make. Thirty years later, when you're trying to tell a very similar story, I think it's a necessary change that you have to make. Um, I don't think the the uh, ending with. Uh, Sam Bowden letting Max Cady go would have worked in 1991. I don't think so either. I mean, I don't, I don't think it would have had the same impact um, that it had. I mean, let's do, you know, in perspective, let's understand that Max Cady is much more violent and deranged in the 91 Cape mm-hmm. Fear. Um, the potential for all that stuff exists in Robert Mitchum's portrayal, I think, but it's it never goes there. It never gets all the way there. Um, Although, I don't know. I mean, he does certainly, uh, you know, still commit that, uh, the, the rape and brutalizing of the woman in the bar. That, I mean, that, it, she, the only difference is she's not connected in the same way to Sam Bowden in the original film as she is in the 19th right. film. So, right, so I guess I'm going to I'm gonna backtrack show. on that a little bit. Is it, so he, it, the brutality is there in Robert Mitchum's portrayal as well. Um, yeah, it's just not shown on camera like it is with Scorsese. Right, right. Um, um, and that's, again, just a modern filmmaking technique. Well, and, and even Robert Mitchum's character in the remake, in this 1991, he has a great cameo, like like I said, like Gregory Peck does as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but even he shows some moral flexibility, because he's the one that tells him to hire some people to... Take care of him. <laughs> take care of him and try to beat him up, which is a great scene even from the original, mm-hmm. where... where Sam Bowden gets some guys to try to jump Katie and run him out of town, and he just whoops the shit out of all of them. <laughs> which is a great scene with De Niro in this guy. Well, the way De Niro's introduced in the 91 version, you know, he's being released from prison. He's covered in these these prison tattoos, like a big cross of, you know, scales of justice and all of these quotes all over him. And it, it was, mm-hmm. you know, he's pull, doing his hair with a mascara brush in a gas station bathroom and stuff like that. You know, it's... And with the the southern accent, you know he's yeah. He's... I, Robert De Niro, or Robert De Niro's performance in this movie is so good. Um, it just it, I think it continues to creep you out after long after this movie is has ended. Yeah, oh, <laughs> like certainly. he just gets under your skin in a way that not many like movie villains have been able to do. Counselor, counselor, is that you? Counselor, come out, come out wherever you are. And yeah, I do want to say, I know it's a different movie, it's a different time, and, and I love Robert Mitchum, and I really yeah. think he was, he was great in the original, but this is just, this is on a whole nother level. Well, um, I, I love how they got De Niro, who's, a, who's an actor who can do these kinds of things, to play a character that was originally done by Robert Mitchum, because my other, this is actually, the original 1962 Cape Fear is my and this is this just this sentence is going to sound weird but it's my second favorite robert mitchum movie yeah i, mean, I know because what you're i have say more than one <laughs> night of the hunter night yes. of the hunter is my favorite mitchum movie because that's another character who is so creepy yeah and i i, I think robert mitchum from night of the hunter my memory of him from night of the hunter already let his max katie be creepy in my mind because i just yeah he's just so great uh, so, 
creepy great. <laughs> like that that's one of the all-time great uh characters that will really get under your skin as well um mm -hmm. and and i don't remember the names of characters in night of the hunter because it's been a while since i've seen it but i <laughs> it's certainly a movie that left an impression like very memorable performance oh yeah well you've got reverend harry powell is, is the name right yep reverend harry powell he's a serial killer he flees uh you know prison and yeah he's got the love and hate tattoos on the knuckles and night of the hunters one i'm surprised hasn't been remade yeah let's honestly. hope it just doesn't <laughs> yeah well i don't know i mean well like but then we again okay so this is a great fear. example now that you brought that up yeah this yeah. is a great example of i always say that and then you know here's a good example of something that takes the subject the, the source material and it does improve on it and it modernizes it in a way that's respectful to the source material but it does it's very much a movie for the 90s like it it has the mistrust in the system um that was mm -hmm. rampant in the 90s like we were talking about oliver stone movies or at the beginning of the podcast and um he's another filmmaker that was really big at this time because that's kind of what you know all of his films were about is the system failing people you know right. the justice system the you know the government the military and i think cape fear fits right into those uh, scorsese's cape fear fits right into that era and that's exactly what it's doing, I think, is questioning the justice system. and, and... Well, yeah, it, it totally does. Because the, the whole point of Cape Fear is legal loopholes. Well, at least the 91 version is legal loopholes. Um, and, and exploiting those. Um, you know, there was... There were... Because really, the only thing that uh, Sam Bowden's character, as a character, did wrong in the 91 version is he did not represent his client to the best of his ability. So yeah. he violated the oath well, he but took it was, when he became Well, but it was more than that, because it was an intentional, like, it wasn't just like, this guy's a scumbag, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna phone it in today. It was like, I have evidence that I'm gonna not submit. And that's that's Which, kind of a totally different thing than just well, not trying hard enough. Like it, 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 it is, in a way, because if you have, if you're an attorney and, you know, you can say... Oh, I didn't know about that evidence. I didn't dig deep enough. Yeah. In this case, he did dig deep enough. He saw it and he ignored it. Right. So it I mean, at the really... moment you become aware and you decide not to exactly do anything. I mean, that's a decision, and that that's that yeah, is so somebody he, he being knowingly, holier than thou. Yeah, he like, knowingly I, misrepresented his client. Yeah, I'm going to dispatch justice because I think this guy's you know, and and he's he's correct about this person, but does is. That's that's kind of what you as the viewer are supposed to question. Like, okay, so he's right. This guy is a dangerous psychopath, and mm -hmm. he should be behind bars. But is it you know is it the right of a lawyer to do something like that? To um, exactly. Yeah. So, so so that made it made it really complicated. I think there's you know, uh, and Mitchum I think did a good job with that. Like I said, he's he's always been one of my. One yeah. of my favorite actors. Absolutely, of this era. that's why it's so hard for me to say that I enjoy or I like or prefer De Niro's performances because I really, I honestly I like them both, and mm -hmm. and yeah. Robert Mitchum's just a fantastic actor as well. Um, but I think I would as much as you know people normally crap. We've already talked a little bit, you know, with with Dawn of the Dead about remakes, mm -hmm. uh, decades after the fact, and it's usually something around thirty years or so, and and yeah, it's um it's it's a hit or miss thing, and usually it's miss because there's something yeah. about i would even say it's the same with with covers of songs too you know if you want to get into the music industry there's some examples where the cover was better than the original but usually 
you know, hey, I, you know, I like Guns N' Roses, but Sympathy for the Devil is a Rolling Stone song. You know right. what I mean? And, and, uh, you know, I also, Sheryl Crow was all right, but uh, Sweet Child of Mine is a Guns N' Roses song. <laughs> and, um, it's the same kind of thing here is, you know, one could say that about a film like Night of the Hunter, um, you know, there's this classic Charles Lawton film and it's got Shelley Winters and it's got mm-hmm. Lillian Gish and Robert Mitchum. But, um, I think the film the remakes like Cape Fear show you that, well, if you get the right director and the right, and the right, you know, screenplay, and you writer, you pay attention really to work. what it has to offer the modern world. That's like, the key. You make the movie for it's very much a movie made for 1991 for the audience then, and Absolutely. what they you know, what their concerns about the world and with a worldview that was pertinent to 1991. I think remakes too often try to stick too close to the original oh, yeah. subject material, and, totally. and what they end up is like a watered down version of the original. And this this is the total opposite. This adds so much um that's good to it and and i i'm not that i would say ever tell somebody to just skip the original cape fear it is a it's a perfectly good film my only problem with it is it's a it's just a little blandly directed uh scorsese's Mm -hmm. film is is yeah by comparison scorsese's film is just beautiful yeah and 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 scorsese's film has more in common with a hitchcock film than it does with the original cape fear except for the you know obviously the story elements are the same are similar but um yeah i'm feeling like he's drawing more from from the hitchcock films of the era than right. the actual cape fear film but yeah it just i don't know it, it it surprised me in such a good way because it's something that I've, I've always been aware exists like i remember when the movie posters of cape fear were up in the video store growing yep. up and and such and i remember this movie coming out obviously i, I did not see it as a child um but it's something that I've always been aware of. The eyes on the poster. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's something that's always, you know, I, I always associate with Cape Fear. So, for me and people that grew up when we did and saw that movie poster, I think this is the definitive version of the film. I'm going to say, and, it, and I I saw them backwards. I saw that I watched the 91 movie first, and then I went back and watched the 62. So... I'm going to actually say that I enjoy the uh, remake in this case more than the original, but I don't want to steer anyone away from watching the original. It's a perfectly good film. It, it, it Even more mm-hmm. than that, it, it, it may even be a great film. It's just this one, the the remake just escalates that to a point where I think... Uh, yeah, and I think it's the fact that it, it is a very well-done remake. It's yes. a remake that, that misses all of the, the normal, you know, potholes that remakes do where they're trying too hard to be the original but then they change too much this is telling a comparable story um but it's updated you know they're not doing a period piece i hate it when they do that when they make a when they remake a movie but they do it in the same Set period the as the original yeah. it's just like, what's the point then um you know like the, the horrible gus van zandt remake of psycho which i will always criticize but <laughs> forever because it was terrible but you know this is one where it's like okay we're going to update cape fear but we're going to keep the same concept and maybe it's just because it's a damn good story yeah you know and it really is it's the ultimate story of you know the it, it this is the quintessential snitches get stitches kind of thing yeah well and also it's you know? it's it's about feeling helpless the law not being able to help you right you know um about your security um falling out from under you and 
Yeah. So yeah, it is. It's a very good story in in both cases. So both well, films it also, are. Also, it also makes you question, which is something that I think anybody who's ever been in a position where to do the right thing seems intimidating, like testifying, you know, or or fessing up to something, you know, or anything like, oh, I saw something and oh, I'm going to say something, you know, uh, I, I'm going to work with authorities or something. People get worried because they don't want, you know, they don't want someone coming after them. Yeah. And and in the original, that's the, the thesis is this guy did the right thing by saying, yes, I witnessed this person doing this horrible thing. And it, but it, you know, the justice system doesn't work because it doesn't protect the person who gave that testimony in this case it's comparable you know you've got this defense attorney who knowingly does his job poorly in order to step beyond what his role is as an attorney but he's doing it for good reasons because he knows this guy could get could get off or get a reduced sentence otherwise yeah so he's doing it makes it for him a, a little less reason. of a victim in the in the new film now his family members are certainly victims of this terror certainly. that he's brought upon them it, it makes him a little more uh, blame can be placed upon Sam Bowden in the 91 film. It can, um, but at the same time, it's it's a blame that most of us would wrestle with. If you were a, a defense attorney, a, a, a DA, and you got this client and you knew they were a brutal rapist, and you had some evidence come across your, your your desk that you knew would either reduce their sentence or possibly even exonerate them. Not even not, I don't want to say exonerate them because that I think we used that word incorrectly earlier too. He, he mm. did it. He did it. <laughs> yep. This would get him off from from going to prison. Um, I think most people with with morals would at least wrestle with the idea of the son of a bitch needs to get locked up. I have this stuff here that could on a technicality or because we have a screwed up justice system that blames the victims could get them out. If I just didn't present this, then there's balance in the universe, right? To some degree, not really, but you know, you know, it, at least there'd be some justice. This guy would go to prison. And I think most of us would wrestle with that. So yeah, it, it's, it was, it's really well done by Scorsese in this, how yeah. he's taking the motivations of this character and at the, while you're also like hey man that wasn't what you're supposed to do i totally get it and i probably would have done the same thing yeah and one more note that i had here that i thought was interesting we hadn't touched on yet and i just want to get to real briefly so we can wrap this up but um the kind of subtext about the suffering of the south in this when characterizing uh max katie um there's a I think it was Joe Don Baker's character, the um, private detective, mm-hmm. that had a little speech about, um, oh, what did he say that the about the South and fear or always being afraid, and because um, he was talking about they the, they were talking about Katie and how he had you know where he had come from and his background as a Pentecostal, um, he wasn't a preacher but son of a Pentecostal preacher and. Um, there's some really like strong subtext about um you know the kind of the the suffering of the south like kind of um the appalachian pentecostal backwoods (laughs) snake handlers um, yes daddy was a snake handler right my daddy 
handled serpents, he says. Oh, man, I should have written out the whole quote because there's a really great moment when uh, Sam Bowden and, what's his name, Kurzak, who Mm -hmm. Joe Don Baker played in the uh, movie, um, are talking about this. And, um, oh, man, I'll have to go back and and figure out what that is and fill you guys in later. But um, it's definitely a subtext to this entire thing um max katie is shaped by that upbringing yeah he de niro plays the role almost like a pentecostal preacher um all the way down to his speaking in tongues as he's starting to drown at the end of the um but just the way he delivers lines and the way he pre i mean he literally preaches i mean that's what he's doing um yeah yeah he sounds like a southern preacher like a street preacher and he is it's I, I don't know it just a credit to De Niro's performance as well that he channels all that into the performance the line the the lines from um you know Kurzak doesn't necessarily even need to be there for you to get that but it definitely brings it to the forefront and you kind of say like oh okay well I get get what they're saying here so he's a product of you know an environment so there's some sympathy there as well i mean not for katie himself but that there's an explanation of where he comes from or people like him come from so right uh, i don't know a lot of smart stuff it's a really great movie yes if you haven't seen the 1991 reboot, and like i agree with you i would give both films a good watch i think the original 62 one is still a classic film there's a reason that it was remade because it was a very very good film to begin with and it was very popular with audiences uh, but I would also strongly recommend tracking down a copy of the 1991 uh, Martin Scorsese version of Cape Fear with Robert De Niro. It's uh, it it really I, I feel that's again, one of the reasons I picked that is because when we started talking about doing this podcast, the idea of kind of the the forgotten great films, maybe forgotten because they've never really been given a spotlight. Um, you know, some of these independent films, or maybe they had their spotlight, but then they kind of got brushed to the side. But they're still really kind of kind of forgotten classics. And I would I would put this version of Cape Fear uh, up there. It's it's the it's the Scorsese film nobody talks about. Yeah, and it I was kind of expecting it to be among his because I've seen some of his films that are some of his lesser works. And Scorsese's always always a competent and wonderful like fantastic mm-hmm. filmmaker but um i was kind of expecting this to rest somewhere in some of his lesser work because of just kind of the way it it no one ever really talks about this movie right. um and it's really fantastic it's actually up there with many of his best so mm-hmm. it may not be his best but it certainly is a peer to any of his best work um and it, it's a peer to any of de niro's best performances as well i mean i think this is fantastic i mean He's mm-hmm. he's good at this kind of stuff. Next to Travis Bickle, this is probably his one of his creepiest creations. Um, oh, I would agree. So. I would I would agree. I mean, so I mean, for, for when it comes to a, like a giving it a score or a grade, what would you what would you give it? I'm gonna give this one an A. Yeah, same I here. I think it's I think it's a fantastic movie. I think it's definitely worth your time. I, I tracked down a copy of this on DVD on Amazon for like six bucks. I mm-hmm. mean, this is certainly worth adding to your collection. I would say. I think I actually found it on YouTube. No, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was like in six parts. <laughs> it was worth watching, okay. even on that. Why not? You know, it worked. Uh, I think, you know, um, what I, what I, I and I've already kind of said this, but just to, to reiterate, one of the things I really loved about it is that it it's good not just as a remake. It's actually a really good film. 
Um, yeah. It's a very well-crafted thriller. It's it's to me this is one of the quintessential thrillers. Um, is is yes. this particular version of Cape Fear for a modern so audience? So many fantastic things about the movie, but at the end of the day, it's De Niro. <laughs> it's the performance. Yeah. It's Max Cady. That's really the thing that's going to get under your skin and stick with you. But it's not the only good thing about it. There's a lot of good things about it. You guys, everybody out there hearing this, if you haven't seen Cape Fear. Um, hopefully you have before you listen to this, but if you haven't, go out and see it. We didn't spoil too much. You'll you'll still get the the effect. Um, yeah, thirty years, damn near so. thirty years later, it's still very very effective. Yeah. Cool. Any any final thoughts on either you are alone or or you are not alone, <laughs> or or uh, Cape Fear? <laughs> well, I um, with Cape Fear, you know, in in, in watching these and uh, reviewing them and doing a little bit of the background research on them, you know, it was really easy to find a lot of information on this, which I think is a testament to how good both of these films really are and how they're they're both have their place in classic American cinema. For You Are Not Alone, I found a lot of uh, Google references to Michael Jackson songs, so <laughs> I think that yeah. says a testament right there on, you know, not to not to beat a, a dead horse or stab it like a, a independent film slasher but you know uh you are not alone i just gosh it was a movie i wanted to like more than i did and cape fear yeah. i think is a film that you like more than you probably should so we're opposites <laughs> on both of these because again really we picked are. one that was very indie and one that's very much a big budget hollywood movie um i had polar opposite reactions uh i expected to like you are not alone much more than i did and i liked cape fear much more than i expected to so um, well, i think that's kind of interesting too because normally when when you and i have you know watched movies i remember there was one time in college uh, just to share this anecdote that we went to the video store this, this was when there was a blockbuster in carbondale illinois and we rented a couple of films and only one of them was actually like a big budget hollywood you know like a, a studio picture everything else was independent and while the effects were bad and the acting was bad in the independent films the stories were really original and very creative and really fun and whatever the, I remember, I don't remember what the film was, but I remember whatever we saw that was the big budget film really kind of sucked. Yeah. So, you know, I've got a, a soft spot in my heart, and I know you do too, for independent gems. But yeah. sometimes... Yeah. Uh, but they're not just, always good. I mean, you can't... Sometimes <laughs> the movie, and sometimes it's like the, the bad acting, you know, I can, I can overlook that, and I can overlook bad effects if the story's good, if the story makes sense, and if the characters are... At least they're trying to develop. They're revealing something about characters, and um, you know, even though these are two polar opposites, I feel like you are not alone. Didn't develop characters in a successful way. It didn't show characters to be developed in some aspects, which really hurt the film. And instead, it relied on an old formula and a new gimmick. While the the actual what's interesting is if you look at the Hollywood this 1991 uh, remake of Cape Fear. They took a classic film, they kept the important elements of it, but they updated it then for a modern audience. So, it's, well, and this was the film brand you know, era too. Hollywood was still taking risks. Hollywood doesn't take any risks anymore, and that's, yeah, that's certainly true. It's, uh, yeah. So, anyway, I mean, that kind of sums up. It, it was. It's, it's a really great. There's a lot of really great films that came out right around this time. Um, a lot of really films that make you think a lot, and a lot of films that will affect you and aren't cookie cutter good guy bad guy big budget blockbusters that came from out of major studios so yeah um, yeah yeah they don't take those kind of risks anymore at least it does it's few and far between it has to be somebody like a martin scorsese or a quentin tarantino to see anything um 
thought-provoking on screen. And Quentin Tarantino's become an impressionist in his older age, I think. So anyway, yeah, I agree. Um, anyway, I'm gonna wrap it up there. And okay. uh, yeah, thank you everybody again for listening. And actually, I want to take a minute and invite you guys to get involved in the conversation. So obviously, you sit if you're uh, if you made it all the way to the end of the episode, you've sat and listened to us talk about movies for um, you know an hour or more so we'd like to get your two cents and uh so we'd like to invite you if you would like to send us some feedback if you have anything to say about any of the films that we talk about on the video junkyard podcast please get involved in the conversation um if you send us some feedback we'll make sure and read it on air and uh we will not promise to agree with you but certainly we'll respect your opinion and absolutely uh, and if we do disagree with you i'll certainly uh, do our best to justify why um and hopefully we you know we'll, we'll all just agree and we can have a big love fest for schlocky uh, older movies <laughs> but, but furthermore anyway, if, you, if you have any any input on other films that you think would be would be kind of fun to review or if maybe in, in talking about the films that we just have or any of the ones that we've already done on the show or anything we'll do in the future um anything that maybe we missed like oh well, there's a scene from this film that references another one that we totally missed please throw those out you know anything to kind of increase this community and 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 like eric said we really want to try to get as much feedback as we can so uh, we more than cordially invite you to please offer any feedback you can on any of our social media uh, platforms yeah get involved with the conversation so um send us feedback at video junkyard podcast at gmail.com or feel free and send us a message on Facebook. Leave a comment on Facebook. We also have a Facebook group, which I have not utilized yet. But please, if uh, you do see the group, uh, request to join, and I will approve you. Um, just say that you heard you've heard the podcast before, and you are welcome to join us for discussion in the Facebook group as well. Um, Going to put a little more attention and work into that in the coming weeks. But uh, get there early, and you will. Um, be part of the conversation so please send feedback video junkyard podcast at gmail.com or on facebook and we look forward to hearing from you and if you don't have anything else joe i think that is it for our fourth of july extravaganza hopefully there are enough fireworks for you yeah so thanks again uh again my name is joe peterson with me as always eric Branson, and we will catch you guys next time thanks again for listening thanks guys You have been listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. You just can't let them go? Go! Stay on the road. Keep clear of the moors. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast and remind you to find us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. On Twitter at Video Junk Pod, and on Instagram as Video Junkyard Podcast, all one word. Want to thank you again for listening, and keep digging. Who knows what treasures you'll find in the Video Junkyard? <laughs>